begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, and we'll continue with the hymn of the month. May God bestow on us his grace. May God bestow on us his grace with blessings rich provide us and may the brightness of his face to life eternal guide us that we his saving help may know his gracious will and pleasure and also to the nation show Christ's riches without measure and unto God convert them thine the praise and thanks of every nation and all the world with joy shall raise the voice of exultation for thou shalt charge the earth O Lord nor suffer sin to flourish thy people's pasture is thy word their souls to feed and nourish in righteous paths to keep them oh let the people praise thy worth in all good works increasing the land shall plenteous fruit bring forth thy word is rich in blessing make God the Father God the Son and God the Spirit bless us let all the world praise him alone. Let Solomon possess us. Now let our hearts say amen. All right, we'll continue with the catechism memory work, which is um, just the Bible memory work from the table of duties. So of citizens. Submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 1 Peter 2:13-14. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil. 
that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. So on the uh, hymn of the month, like I said last week, this uh, hymn is written by Martin Luther. Uh, he's really, that's one of the reasons I like Luther mo- most is his, is his hymn writing. Uh, ex- excellent hymn write. And this is his mission hymn. It's his evangelism hymn, if you will. And so um, he starts off talking about not uh, going out and, you know, t- telling people about Jesus per se. Uh, but he starts off talking about our relationship with Christ. And I think that that's insightful in, in stanza one. That and this is how I teach evangelism too, is that evangelism is or, or witnessing Christ. It's sharing with others what you yourself have already experienced. Uh, that that you've been provided for, you've been blessed, you've been forgiven by Christ, and when God uh, gives that grace to you, you can't help. But it's going to overflow to others, right? This is the, the image of the overflowing cup in the scripture, that um, God fills us up so much that our cups overflow, and that, that with his mercy and grace, and that overflowing spills over to other people, right? Um, and this is why I'm not huge on like big evangelism programs. We'll do certain organized evangelism activities, but having like a huge big program or doing something very um, kind of systematic doesn't always make sense to me with evangelism because it, one, it kind of goes against the nature of evangelism, which is simply that uh, evangelism or witnessing Christ is going to happen naturally out of the true Christian. And second, it, it tends to, when you start doing big programs, you're starting to treat people like numbers um, instead of lost souls. That um, this is, you know, with with modern day American evangelicalism, whatever you want to uh, categorize that at. Um, you know, a lot of our our Baptist friends, a lot of our Methodist friends. They, at least when I was around those people um, growing up, some and and my interactions with them. Uh, nothing against them, but they tended to treat evangelism like this thing that you kind of had to do. It was kind of this like checklist requirement. Um, and I, I remember going to Baptist churches with my friends in high school, and they would ask questions of the students like, how many people did you invite tonight? How many, yeah. how many souls have you won for Christ? And in the, in the Lutheran perspective, and I think in the biblical perspective for that matter, um, that's kind of ridiculous because one – you don't do it, right? It's the Holy Spirit's work. Only the Holy Spirit brings uh, people. You you preach the word, you speak the word to people, and they receive it. And the Holy Spirit uses that implanted word to to grow that seed, um, which is fantastic. But they're not. Whenever that happens, that's a lost soul, right? That's a soul for whom Christ died. It's not just a number to add to the church roster. Um, so that's always important. So, but anyway, the, the point of the hymn here, may God bestow on us his grace with blessings which provide us the brightness of uh, his face to life eternal guide us that we his saving health may know his gracious will and pleasure. So that before Luther ever gets to uh, the actual mission part of the hymn, his whole point is that we need to receive this first, right? The Christian needs to continually pray for God's abundant blessings and provision and and uh, eternal grace. Um, and then when we know that, it, that last line, and also to the nation show Christ's riches without measure and unto God convert them. Right, so um, that reminds me of the Philippians 3 from last, last week's sermon, which 
I brought in the earlier part of Philippians 3 for the sermon, but in in that um, second to last paragraph of Philippians 3, I, I don't remember the verse, uh, Paul calls what Luther's talking about here the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. I love that phrase. So anyway, we'll uh, probably talk about stanza two uh, next week. So that'll be good. Good. Uh, so we'll do that next week. Then um, on the catechism for this week of citizens. So this is kind of almost beating a dead horse. I mean, we've talked about this for multiple weeks now between government and citizens. Um, and there's in the table of duties. It says I have in here selections from the table of duties because I didn't even put in every single thing that that Luther gives um, in the table of duties. Where's the catechism in here? Let's see. The small catechism. Here we go. So in case you didn't know, also in the, the hymnal, the Pew hymnal, there's on pages in the 320s, basically, um, there's a copy of Luther's small catechism. So that's pretty helpful. Oh, yeah. So we got – yeah, the in the table of duties he gives – it just gives uh, – it doesn't have them printed out, but it lists the scripture passages here so of citizens there's five different this is the last one so next week we'll have the husbands and wives um but he gives five different references for citizens so something that's kind of important uh for him i think is how do you live in society but uh first peter 2 here a couple things one i know we've said this before but christians can't be anarchists uh the the thrust of the passage here submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or to the governors, so on. So Paul is giving, or no, excuse me, Peter. Peter is giving examples there of the different kinds of authorities God institutes. But the idea is that we don't live chaotically, right? We we live in an ordered society, and so we submit uh, to whatever authority is instituted among men. And I like that he says does it that way where he says, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as supreme authority or to governors uh, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Because what he's saying there or showing there is that um, the authority could is, is different based on context, right? So we could be talking about in his context, in the um, basically in the early or in the Roman Empire, in the early church, there's a there's king, there's a king, and then there's governors. Um, in our context, there's not a king and governors. Uh, we do have an executive branch of the government that has a president and governors, but we also have a legislative branch of the government, which means we have laws uh, that are made by the people, supposedly. Um, although I didn't get to vote on my property being annexed by Olive Branch, but, you know, whatever. Um, and we also have a judicial branch of the government, and we have a constitution, and we have state constitutions. So there's there's various forms of uh, governmental structure and authority, and um, a mistake would be, I know I've said this many times before, but a mistake would be to try and kind of transpose what Peter is saying here on top of our modern American government. Oh, he uses the word governors. That means that I have to agree with and absolutely obey everything that Tate Reeves says. That's not – that doesn't follow. And the reason that doesn't follow is because the principle is not that you obey governors no matter what. The principle is that you submit to authority, that you don't live in a chaotic society, and our – Authority in this country and in the, in the, in the state is uh, based upon primarily upon the Constitution. Um, I would I would argue uh, that um, the Constitution itself says that if there's you know a tyrannical um, if anyone becomes tyrannical, it's our duty to to disobey, right? Um, that's the whole you know idea of the revolution and all that. Anyhow. Um, but, the, but my point is just that you have to you have to take 
pay attention to what the government that God has instituted in your place and time is, not just whatever government the Roman Empire was. Um, we can't just transpose that historically on top of our situation. Okay. Um, all right. I think that's all I have to say about that. Oh, and then, um, I mean, I say this all the time, but this 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 phrase at the end in First Peter uh, 2.14, that the authorities are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. That's the job of the government, is to punish wickedness and promote peace. That's the job of the government. Um, it's not any more complicated than that. So that's always important to keep in mind, too, that that... That's and that also provides limitations for the government as well. All right, good deal. Any questions on the hymn or catechism? On the hymn, yeah. I think uh, the evangelism that I like the best is like Mary Magdalene after she she realizes that Jesus is you know sees him, mm-hmm. then she runs and tells others. See, so we should be a little bit excited about that. Yeah, right, right. Well, of course we should be. And um, it's always amazing to me what people will um, talk to you about and not be quiet about. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if I ask a Memphis Tigers fan about the Tigers this year, they'll talk to me for two hours, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if I ask someone their opinion on COVID regulations, they'll talk to me for about six hours. If I ask someone their opinion on gas prices, they'll talk to me for a long time, you know. Um, and but if I ask someone their opinion on Jesus Christ who won salvation for the entire world, <laughs> maybe a couple sentences, you know, like maybe yeah, I'm a Christian, or no, I don't really buy that, or whatever. Um, you know, it's just amazing. I could talk about Jesus, like. All day, you know, it's he's amazing. He's, I mean, everything about what he's done for me and 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 what he's done for all of us. Um, and I think to realize that that the um, the depth and 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 richness of what Christ has done for us should constantly be. On our minds, right? We should care about that more than than really anything in life. And um, then, therefore, talking about it in the same way that we talk about our favorite sports team, or the, or uh, you know, as another example I'll give sometimes is when people go on a diet and it's a very successful diet and they lose a lot of weight. Like they don't, they won't stop telling you about the the success they had, and they'll, you know, they'll they'll say, yeah, this is. Um, you should try this. It's really amazing stuff. And that's like a very, very small analogy to how we should think about salvation, right? Because we've been saved not just from kind of being fat or whatever, right? We've been saved by from eternal sin and damnation. <laughs> and and uh, we've, we have the most rich treasure in the world by – by this so we should tell people yeah you should try this <laughs> you know why don't you why don't you try this um and that's well actually another great passage for while i'm opening my bible i'll just go there um another great passage for evangelism is john 1 uh Philip and Nathaniel, um, and Jesus calls Philip to be um, one of his disciples. Says uh, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, so this is John 1:43, and he found Philip and said to him, "Follow me." Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, "We found." Him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, 
can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth is kind of this, you know, backwater town. And and Philip says to him, come and see. Just come and see, right? And then um, Jesus uh, sees Nathanael coming toward him and says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? So I think this is, I mean, first of all, the most basic principle we can get for evangelism here is what Philip says to Nathaniel, just come and see, right? So when you invite someone to church, you say, hey, this is the most amazing thing that happens every single week in my life. Um, I receive the very body and blood of Jesus on my tongue, and my sins are forgiven. Come and see, right? Come and see. And then what happens afterwards is also good to know is that Jesus connects with and knows Nathaniel. And I think that is true of basically anyone when they hear the true preaching of the word is this sense of how did you know that about me, right? Um, it just makes sense. The, the Bible makes sense of the world in a way that nothing else can because God created the world he created the world to function a certain way. He created the world to be a certain way, and that is most fully revealed in his word. And so when you hear his word, you're like, wow, everything makes sense now. right? Before, nothing really made sense. It was chaotic. Um, now, it, now it makes sense. So that's um, – I think that's a great evangelism passage. Anyway, sorry, that was just a, a tangent, but um, – now to any other questions on the hymn or or the catechism? All right. That's where we're at. So we are continuing in Old Testament Bible history, and I printed out more of these sheets if you if you want them for reference. But very shortly we're going over the Northern Kingdom's prophets right now, and this is our last northern kingdom prophet, Hosea. Um, Hosea, and Hosea is between Daniel and Joel in the Old Testament, so um, he's the first minor prophet in the in the book of the Twelve and the Minor Prophets. Uh, so if you want to turn there, we'll, we'll look at some passages here in a moment. But the remember in the divided kingdom, uh, you have this whole section kind of from the second half of First Kings onward uh, throughout the Old Testament, where you have both kings and prophets in the two different kingdoms: in the northern kingdom Israel and in the southern kingdom Judah. And then eventually, we're going to get exiles from both of those places: the Assyrian exile in the northern kingdom Israel and the Babylonian exile in the southern kingdom, Judah, um, before they return from captivity uh, for the second temple, which is then, then you have the intertestamental period, and then that's when Christ comes in. He comes into second temple Judaism. So um, anyhow, the, hopefully the, um, the, the history packet is helpful for you. On the last page of the history packet, you can see where Hosea lands. So Hosea prophesies uh, during a couple different kings, during the reigns of a couple different kings in uh, the northern kingdom, uh, primarily Jeroboam II. I gotta go through and test my markers sometime. That one's not good. Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II is an interesting king. Uh, if you remember when we talked about Jeroboam II, I don't, I don't know if you remember. He's on one hand uh, very successful, um, in that he gets a lot of earthly wealth, 
right? This is Israel's most profit, uh, profitable um, reign is under Jeroboam II. Uh, so lots of earthly wealth. Um, and one of the ways that that's accomplished is he has good relationships with foreign nations and he's trading with them and he's getting help from them. Um, one of which is Assyria, which will eventually uh, turn on Israel and and overtake them and bring them into exile. But uh, at the time, Assyria is um, a ally of Israel under Jeroboam II. He is one of the worst kings in that because of the success in some ways and their earthly wealth, they are distracted. They don't worship the true God and they worship Baal, uh, the Canaanite God, and they attribute that success uh, to, to Baal's um, blessing them, which is obviously false. But uh, they, they do that, right? So um, they're, they're successful. They have wealth. Uh, they also have a lot of military victories, right? So they have a um, strong military, especially with the help of the foreign nations. Uh, but he's one of the worst kings in being the most unfaithful to Yahweh, the most unfaithful to the true God. And so uh, this is when Hosea prophesies. Uh, this is when Hosea prophesizes, mainly under the reign of Jeroboam II. Okay. He's also one of the longest-serving prophets because he prophesies not only under Jeroboam, but you can see there um, basically under four or five other kings as well after Jeroboam II. Um, the, all those prophets are, are kind of in, the, in that uh, last 50-60-year uh, um reign of Israel in the northern kingdom. So he's one of the longer serving prophets. He probably uh, prophesies probably 60 or 70 years actually. So, all right. Let's, uh, yep. All right. So in the book of Hosea, uh, we'll do themes first, so some central themes. And the biggest one, if you know anything about the book of Hosea, this is probably what you already know, is that idolatry equals adultery. Idolatry equals adultery. So Hosea is going to draw a connection between idolatry and adultery uh, by the Lord's command, using his life as an example. So this is something actually very common among the prophets, uh, is that they will act out in their own life something that they want to get across to the people. Um, so Ezekiel is probably most famous for this when Ezekiel um, will uh, do things like uh, camp at the uh, Chibar Canal and, and other things. Um, what's the... What is he? He wears like odd clothing. This is like, well, like John the Baptist is another example where he he goes and camps in the wilderness and wears uh, eats wild locust and, and honey and 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 wears camp. Um, that's my, my mind is drawing a lot of blanks this morning uh, and and wears uh, sackcloth. So he's acting out in his life. Um yeah, oh yeah, so this is what I was thinking about with Ezekiel is he uh God commands him to um eat eat the scroll that he's given. Um and it's a sign that the sweet words of God of God's word are are not being uh treated with reverence by by the people of uh of Judah. So um yeah, Ezekiel is, does this type of thing all the time. Um, anyway, but Hosea acts this out in his life in that God commands him to marry a, as I think the ESV said, calls calls her a wife of whoredom. Um, 
or in the NKJV here, we have uh, a, a wife of harlotry. So maybe that's a because it's an older term, it doesn't sound as harsh. But the idea is that she's an adulteress. So Gomer is her name, uh, the woman that Hosea marries. And Hosea is commanded by the Lord to go and marry this adulterous wife. And that is to symbolize that the people of Israel, the people of the northern kingdom, have gone astray looking for help, not from God, but from foreign nations, and looking for blessing, not from God, but from Baal. So they've gone astray and from their true God, which is idolatry, right? They've had other gods, but really what that's like is like an adulterous wife who goes and sleeps with another man. She's gone, she's gone astray from the one she was to be married to. And all of this makes a lot more sense when you go and read Ephesians 5, where uh, Ephesians 5 verse, I think it's around 19 or 20, um, that, that paragraph there where Paul is very clear. Um, so this is verses 22 and on. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, just as, uh, and he is the savior of the body, therefore, just as the church is to subject to Christ, so let wives uh, submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he goes on and on and on. Um, and uh, eventually he says, uh, this mystery is profound. I'm talking about Christ and the church. He gets confused when he's talking about marriage and Christ and the church because it's the same reality. Uh, the church is the bride of Christ. God's people are his bride. And um, therefore, whenever God's people go astray, what they're doing is they're cheating on their husband. Right? They're, they're cheating on God. And so idolatry and adultery are the same action, just uh, described in two different ways. So that's going to be his central theme, uh, the, one of the main ones um, in the book of Hosea with his marriage to Gomer. And then we'll see how that carries out too and what Hosea does, who Hosea here is the husband symbolizing Christ. We'll see what Hosea does in response to that adultery. Another thing is um, you cannot serve God and mammon. So this is the same. This is what we were talking about before with the success and the, the earthly wealth and the military victories and all of that. If you remember a uh, sermon a couple weeks ago, we talked about mammon. The God of mammon is the God of excess. The God of mammon is the God of, of uh idolizing and wanting more than you possibly need, right? So the man who uh, builds more storehouses to store all his grain that he doesn't know what he's going to do with, um, that's serving mammon. And that's – so it's not just about having money or having wealth um, because there are times when God's people can be successful and can have wealth. Abraham has a lot of wealth, right? It's a question of stewardship. Um, when – they start to worship when Jeroboam II starts to worship all the success and earthly wealth and his relationships with foreign nations and then starts to attribute that to Bell. It shows that you cannot serve God and mammon. And um, Hosea, similar to Amos, who we've been talking about, is going to uh, focus in on that, that you're rich in a certain way, but you're very, very poor in others. Right? Amos has that passage about how there's going to be a famine in the land, not a famine of grain, but a famine of the word of God. And that's how he, one of the ways he prophesies the exile. So we got that theme kind of running in the background. Um, to pick back up on the adultery theme, or the idolatry, whatever you want to call it, either idolatry or adultery, um, it has consequences. So much like Amos, 
who prophesies at the same time to the same people, Hosea is going to be clear that the exile is coming. He's clear that there is a punishment for this kind of behavior and that that bad things happen whenever adultery happens. It ruins relationships, right? And you're you're risking your relationship with with your father, uh, with with the true God. You're you're risking your relationship with the the bridegroom of the church. Okay, so there's that. But then to kind of contrast that, um, the the final main thing, and actually probably the most important one, is uh, God's extraordinary grace and mercy. So what happens with Hosea and Gomer is that even though Gomer commits adultery, God commands Hosea to go and redeem her, to buy her back, and to uh, keep his marriage with her. And that is kind of an amazing thing. So if you think about in Matthew 19, when Jesus uh, gives the legitimate reasons for divorce, uh, which are really only two, uh, adultery and abandonment. Most of the time, I shouldn't say most of the time. I don't know exactly the statistics on this. I would, I would guess that most of the time, especially in our society, when a spouse commits adultery, the marriage ends in divorce. And, and Jesus does allow that. I mean that is biblically allowed that um, if reconciliation is not possible because of adultery, because the trust is so deeply broken between the spouse – between the, uh, the, the, the two spouses, uh, the, the couple, then, then divorce is permit, permissible. Now, it is also true – that adultery is not ap- – or that divorce is not absolutely necessary in the case of adultery, right? So uh, it is possible, and I know couples who have done this, that after a case of adultery, the couple can still reconcile and stay married. And um, that is, of course, on the basis of uh, forgiveness that is only accessible, uh, I think, through – through Jesus Christ, right? That kind of extraordinary forgiveness. Um, because ordinarily, right, you would think that after adultery, it would be very, very hard to reconcile with your spouse. Well, uh, God's grace and mercy is extraordinary, right? It's outside of the ordinary kind of grace and mercy that a normal person can, can muster up. And so when uh, God tells Hosea, keep your wife, go back and redeem her, and be faithful to her, uh, which would be very difficult for your normal person, what he's doing is he's showing the kind of love and grace that he has for his church. So despite the fact that Israel has constantly gone astray, I mean, think back through, all the way back to the wilderness wanderings, um, all the way back to the patriarchs, God's people are constantly going astray and committing idolatry slash adultery. And yet he says over and over again through the book of Hosea, I will forgive these people. These people will be my bride. I will love these people. I will be faithful to these people. And it's kind of amazing God's extraordinary grace. So this is kind of contrasted then to the book of Amos. If you remember, I mean in Amos it was like kind of 90% punishment, 10% there's hope because there's a remnant. Hosea is like 10% punishment, 90% God's going to buy you back. God's going to redeem you. There's, there's a hope for the future, um, his extraordinary grace and mercy. So it's a very hopeful book in that sense, um, that despite all this idolatry and worship of mammon and worship of Baal, that uh, there, is, there is hope for the future. So uh, those are the main themes of the book. Um, we'll do the outline next and then look at some key passages. Any questions so far?
All right. So as far as the outline of the book goes, um, could outline it in a couple different ways, but uh, we'll do this this one. So uh, one through three is the the story of Hosea and Gomer, um, and that's that's a, it's actually a lot. It's one of the longer minor prophets. It's uh, 14 chapters. So um, you you get that story of Hosea and Gomer and their the adultery and the marriage and all that. Um, really in the first uh, three chapters, um, and even then it's it's uh, very interspersed with these prophecies of Israel, so it's kind of interesting. Um, then in chapters uh, 4 through 10, you get uh, all the – you get the prophecies again, um, primarily against Israel. Uh, like I said, you get a lot of hope interspersed in here too. Um, there's there's always a lot of hope um, of God's grace and mercy that's going to uh, be there. But he is going to go uh, in this in this section on some of Israel's problems with the mammon and with the Baal worship. Um, the trust. One of their big problems is the trust in the. Israel's alliances, and he's going to talk about how Assyria is eventually going to turn against them. Um, so he's prophesying, he's prophesying these things in in his poetry. Um, so that's kind of the main thrust of those chapters. Uh, Eleven through thirteen is interesting because he kind of turns a more historical end. So this is more future um, in four through ten. Um, it's more historical in eleven through thirteen. Uh, where he's going to bring to mind things of the past in uh, Israel's history, like the the whole story of Jacob, um, and he talks about Jacob and Laban, um, and Jacob's kind of struggles with his multiple wives, and but then Jacob's also like wrestling with God. He brings up he brings up Saul as um, the king about how Israel wanted a king. And felt like they really needed a king to be like the other nations, but then how much of a failure Saul was and how the kingdom is now divided. Um, he brings up the wilderness wanderings um, and how basically to show that there's nothing new to what you're acting like. That um, even back in the wilderness wanderings, they were committing spiritual adultery, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, so... We got that kind of history lesson there. And then finally, verse 14 is all about the future hope. It's all about the future hope of the nations. So um, that's kind of the outline of the book. Uh, the Probably the most exciting part is chapters 1 to 3. But once you kind of see what is going on, then it, it's, it becomes a really great book as you as you start to read all the poetry any any questions on the outline of the book there all right so next we'll do key passages let's see we got about six minutes here all right so uh first one we'll look at is one four through nine one four through nine so i'll just go ahead and read that Then the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. So context here, I should just start at verse 3. Hosea takes Gomer as his wife, and uh, she conceives and bears him a son. So um, then this is the son's name. So this is about Hosea and Gomer's children. Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy. And uh, Lo-Ruhamah there literally means not my people. So your your translation might just say call her name 
not my people. Um, For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Oh, excuse me. It means um, no mercy, not no mercy. So low, low Rama is uh, no mercy. And then we'll get to um, low Ami, which is not my people. Um, Yeah. So the different names mean different things. But I will utterly take them away, yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or battle, or horses, or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So whenever the wife of harlotry, the adulterous wife, has children uh the children are prophecies the names of the children are prophecies against the adulterous israel um and the the three prophecies are that there will be a destruction of the the people of israel so that's jezreel that there's going to be an end to the kingdom of the house of israel and that that the bow will be broken in the valley of jezreel then there's no mercy that um God has been what what has been keeping Israel going this whole time? What has been keeping them alive? It's God's mercy, right? How else could they stay alive if they didn't have God's mercy? So then Lo Ruhama, uh, I will no longer have mercy. I will utterly take them away. And then um, not my people, Lo Ami, that they will that they're whenever um, they have gone, they have they have decided to basically decided to try and divorce God. Uh, to leave him, then he he says uh, they are no longer my people, right? So this is a very harsh. Um, they've completely left a very harsh prophecy against them. Um, and then what we're going to see as he has all these prophecies of hope throughout the rest of the book is that he's going to reverse these things, right? Yes, there will be a destruction, but I will bring you back, right? I will re- we will rebuild. Um, so he prophesies the rebuilding of the temple. Yes, there will be no mercy, but I will have mercy. Um, I will I will go out and I will find you. I will have new mercy again. And yes, you have left me. You have called yourselves not my people, but I will still call you my people. I will buy you back. I will redeem you. And the idea of redemption in this book too is huge, right? That um, I mean, you can think about. Redemption in the book of Ruth, in, in Ruth, um, which is like kinsman redeemer. Uh, this is the same kind of idea that if you wanted to keep a marriage with an adulterous wife, you would have to buy her back out of where she's gone, right? You'd have to uh, go and redeem her, bring her back to yourself, and that's what God does for His people. So, um, those the children's names I think are are a good, uh, interesting prophecy there. All right, so then um, we'll look at, let's see, uh, just really quickly here. What time is it? Uh, 2, 19 to 20. So this is one of the prophecies of hope um, that, and and this... uh, So I'll just read it. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So uh, when they have gone astray like this, when they have committed the spiritual adultery, God calls to them and says, I'm still going to marry you. (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to make you my my bride uh, forever. In righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. So um, the destruction is not going to be there. The the righteousness uh, and mercy and justice is going to be there. And um, then this last line, and you shall know the Lord. So the word know, and this is what we're going to get to in the next verse, um, in chapter 4. The word know in Hebrew is this Hebrew word... Yada, and 
it's a very loaded word. Uh, most of the time it's used. Sometimes it just means, yeah, I know this or I know that. But normally no is talking about relationships. So whenever Eve uh, bears Seth, it says Adam knew Eve and she bore to him a son. Adam knew Eve. What does that mean? It means they were intimate, right? They had, uh, they had relations together. They knew each other intimately. And that goes along with the marriage theme, right? And the adultery theme is that to, to know God is uh, to know him intimately. Uh, and I think especially if you look kind of in the New Testament, as that continues on, how do we know God intimately in the New Testament? We share in his body and his blood, right? That the Lord's Supper is the consummation of the, the marriage between Christ and his church, um, which is in some ways an odd way to think about it, but it, it does make sense that um, Christ shares his, his body with us. Um, not in a weird way, but um, this, this is the analogy is that Christ is, our, is the church's bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ and he shares himself intimately with us. And so when God here through Hosea says, and you shall know the Lord, he's saying you shall have this deep love relationship, covenant faithfulness with me. Um, and then in chapter four, uh, verses, verse one, um, the main charge against Israel is hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. Here's the charge. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. That there's no knowing God in the land. They don't know him anymore. Which means that they've committed adultery. Right? They've, they've gone astray from him. Uh, yeah, so that, that one's great. And then, um, so that's 4.1. Um, so we'll kind of put that together. And then, uh, five, oh, we're, we're about out of time. All right, so... Let me draw a line here. That's where I have to pick up next week. All right. Um, any any final questions or comments on any of that? Anything in Hosea? All right. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, that you have redeemed your people. We praise you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be uh, the perfect bridegroom for your church his bride and we pray that you would keep us faithful uh, in this marriage between Christ and his church that the church would continue to submit in everything uh, to Christ her savior we pray that you would keep us all faithful in our individual lives as well as we are part of the broader church and we pray that you would come to us today and bless us with your word and sacrament as we worship and praise you. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.